everybody welcome to another episode of adventures in devops and today we're kind of winging it because we are without charles he's left us all alone here we threw the mics on and we're going to record this we'll see if he has second thoughts or not i'm will button and with me today is jeffrey groman hey will how are you doing i'm doing great how are you doing today i'm doing great also it's a fun time. You know, you're right. Charles isn't here to read down our necks, which means we either talk about anything we want, right? which means for listeners who don't know me, that means we're going to be talking a lot about security. No. Which, you know, is it's actually kind of relevant right now, right? You know, it, it really is. So, so I think what we really wanted to talk about in all seriousness was like the crucial skills every DevOps engineer loosely termed DevOps engineer, because we've talked about this many times that that's not really a true job title, but, you know, loosely speaking, what are the skills, the crucial skills that everyone in this field needs to have? And, you know, we're we're chatting a little bit about whether we're talking about hard skills or soft skills, but I thought, Will, you had a really great sense of like starting out by talking about some of the soft skills might be even more important. So I don't want to steal your thunder. I want you to sort of maybe start us off, but I, I think that's that's a fun path to go down. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Yeah, because whenever we first came up with this title, I thought, what are the things that every DevOps engineer must know? I thought, oh, easy, slam dunk, Linux sysadmin skills. We're going to drop a seven second podcast and be out of here. But then I got to thinking about the different DevOps engineers I've worked with over the years and realized that not all of them were strong in Linux or sysadmin skills. So then I was like, well, what did they do that made me think that they were really good at DevOps? And that's when I got off onto the whole soft skills path, which is um, which is a really difficult topic, you know, like we were talking about because in traditional programming. If you think about what's everything that a JavaScript developer must know, and you've got promises and callbacks and async await, or a Java developer, you know, you have to understand garbage collection. And like there's these really concrete things that they just have to know to be successful. But in DevOps, the thing that you had to know yesterday to make you successful may have absolutely no relevance with the thing that you need to know today. And I think that's really important for people who want to get into DevOps because you get this list of things I have to learn for DevOps. And it's this huge list, you know, it's like everything that's ever happened in computing since the late 60s, just memorize it and you'll be set, you know, and 
it's this overwhelming list. And so that's where we came up to the soft skills thing about like what we said earlier was um, I think one of the really important skills or the most important skills is the ability to read the field and like get this overall sense of what's happening on the field and then do like Wayne Gretzky said, you know, go where the puck is going to be. I, and I love that idea. I mean, I, I, because it, it's really talking about it's not it's not about what's happening at the moment. It's it's knowing how to position yourself right to in, in the case in the hockey analogy, it's how do I position myself so I can score a goal? That's really what it is, right? Because if I right. if I'm always reacting, I'm going to be two steps behind, right? Yeah. That's really what we're talking about. So when you say that, are you thinking? Like in terms of, hey, for my project or maybe for the next incident, I need to be thinking, okay, what what's what's going on? Where's the puck going and, and how do I get in front of it? Or are you thinking more broader, long-term, like career-wise? Hey, let's look at where where things are going and, and what skill do I need to learn next? Because I, I feel like these are two very different areas. But on the, on, on the other hand, they're probably two very relevant areas for anybody in DevOps. Yeah, for me, I, I specifically think about where the team is going. You know, what are we doing as a business? And that's one of the reasons I emphasize so much that if you are working in DevOps, the best thing you can do is just go embed yourself with the development teams that you support and, you know, attend their scrum or their planning sessions. And you'll get an idea of what they're trying to do, what they're accomplished, which gives you that lead time to see where the puck is going to be when they get ready to click the deploy button and they expect this infrastructure to be there. Right. Now that makes sense, right? That makes sense. So, so what you're talking about really, I think is, is sort of, you know, sort of breaking down the barriers, right. And and just making sure that everyone's aware of, Hey, this is where, and and I think you're also hitting on another point, which the developers are tend to sort of lead the way. So um, get in with those who are leading the way, understand where, I don't know, lack of a better term, the project, the application, the whatever it is, like this is where it's going. This is how we're addressing it so that the engineers can get behind it. Yeah, because it's, I think for the companies I've been involved with, which is primarily tech-oriented companies that have the main product of the company is a software application. Yeah. You know, the developers get their marching orders from sales and marketing, and that's the product that's going to be built. You know, there's no... There's no debate over that. Right. It's going to happen. So the best thing you can do is figure out what it is that they're trying to do and make sure that you've got the the framework for them to be successful at that. And then, you know, sometimes whenever they're, whenever you get in there with them on a regular basis, you hear about these things while they're still in the concept stage and you can steer the infrastructure requirements a little bit to make your life easier, which, you know, there's no shame, there's no shame in that. Right. All right. For sure. No, I, I, I like that idea. I mean, I think anytime you can break down barriers and if you've got that, you don't have that skill set and communication is not what's easy for you and you just want to be steering a screen. I think, honestly, I think DevOps is going to be a challenge. And to be honest, I think anything, the way that the way the world is going, like anything is going to be a challenge because I mean, we're, we're just moving into a world. We've already moved into a world that is all about collaboration. Um, right. And we've got to be able to work together to be able to do that. So I think, my, great. So that's point number one, right? Point number one is breaking down those communication barriers, getting yourself embedded with people, 
with everyone else, the developers, anybody else, the business, understand what's coming down and being ready for it before you're even asked to do that. So I love that. I, I want to take a different tack though, because right this on. is just, so my experience, <laughs> my experience, and this is definitely somewhat from security incidents. It's also from like my early days of, of IT work. You know, I think that there's two areas, I think they go hand in hand that I think are really crucial in the DevOps world. And that is the ability to troubleshoot and right and just understand like something breaks, um, how to like not spend the next three hours chasing down the wrong, you know, and, and finding yourself at a dead end, right? And it's not, it's definitely a soft skill because it's not something that anybody can teach you. I know like when we talk about incident management from a security standpoint, like when we're trying to to an incident investigation, like some some of the incidents you're probably reading about in the press, right? Right. The people who are running those incidents, like that takes years of experience and practice and just sort of learning to get to build that sort of insight or that that instinct for what do I think is going on? What do I think is what, what are the bad guys doing? Or in, in the case of DevOps, it's gonna be more about like what's where is the issue? Like why is why did Blink crash? Or why did you know or, or why is why is the um or, or why is throughput or whatever else just tanked or, or whatever whatever the incident is about. But so I, I think that's one and I, I don't have a quick answer for for how you get that, but I do think it's predicated on understanding how stuff works. Mm-hmm. And you sort of hinted on this before when you said you kind of said, and I think it was sort of tongue in cheek, but you said something like, "If you want to be a, a DevOps world, you've got to know everything that's happened since 1960 on to today, and understand it from a technology standpoint." And there is some truth to that because. You have to understand how things like, and, and it just gets me sometimes when I'm chatting with people like in my day-to-day work, I do a lot of consulting work. So I'm always ca- talking to people that are in different facets of IT. And it just shocks me sometimes when I'm talking to someone, they have no idea how DNS works, right? right? And okay, you know, maybe you've never been a DN- DNS administrator, but you you have to understand how this stuff works because... I mean, that's, I think that's a, that's a great example of if your DNS infrastructure has a problem, man, that's going to take down everything, right? I mean, that's, everything's predicated on DNS because, you know, long gone are the days when we're putting in IP addresses into our browsers or do an application or, you know, an API or anything else, right? I mean, everything is DNS based. So I feel like there's just these core concepts or IP address you know, networking, like understanding what a what an address is and what a net mask is, or you know, like basic stuff like that. I remember in one conversation, I I mentioned I just just used the term a slash twenty four, and people just looked at me like, a what, a who? <laughs> and, you know, I'm not going to ask you like what the net mask is for an address or something. Like, okay, you know, this doesn't it doesn't have to be like a textbook, but you got to understand how just basic networking is like how it works how do what do switches and routers do what do firewalls do (laughs) what don't they do i feel like and and then you sort of take that to the next level of applications and you've got a lot of people who don't necessarily understand exactly what the difference might be between 
different authentication schemes. Like what's the difference between OAuth and SAML, for instance, right? And I think some people might shake their heads like, I'm not really sure. And that's okay. I mean, if you've never been exposed to it, you may not. But again, it's like so much stuff is built on that. Like if your application is built on SAML and SSO, uh, single sign-on, like you got to know how that works, at least to some degree, right? And I feel like just too often, folks that struggle are the same folks who don't really spend the time, you know, trying to figure this stuff out. And I just feel like if your application is using whatever, it's using DNS, it's using IP addresses, and if it's using OAuth or it's using SAML, you better dig into these things and just understand how they work, at least in relation with your application, <laughs> Or maybe the other applications in your, you know, in your organization, because you can be pulled from project to project. But that to me is like, I don't know. I, I just, I have to say, I don't, I don't know if those are, I guess they're not really soft skills, but I feel like you got to know the Legos. You got to know how the stuff's built. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And I think that's probably like when you get to, when you move out of soft skills, I think that's probably the number one thing that a DevOps engineer has to know is like, what are the building blocks that let all these pieces run on top of each other? Because most of the time, you know, they're pretty reliable. When I think back through the the outages yeah. that I've been on, very few of them were related to those core services. But in a lot of instances, those core services were instrumental in pointing me to where the actual problem was. Yes. And and I think another piece of that is by understanding those core services, it will help you identify where the fire is a lot faster. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, and, and thank you, because I think you sort of helped me sort of go for full circle on this, but that because that, that's where I was starting with it is like, I, I don't know how to teach people how to troubleshoot, but I can tell you this, the more you understand all those pieces and parts, when somebody comes to you and says, yeah, I, I bet it's, I bet it's DNS is broken. And you'll be like, no, this is not a DNS issue. Like, <laughs> I, I can see, I can do a dig or an NS lookup or whatever. Like DNS is working just fine. I know that. <laughs> so let's move on. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, I think you're, I mean, that that's really what I was sort of trying to drive at. And I mean, we haven't really gotten into, because I, I do think I want to try and touch on, I do think understanding security is, is a huge piece, right? I mean, we talk about DevSecOps, to me, it's, it's redundant. It's DevOps incorporates that, incorporates security by definition, right? It incorporates everything. It's just, it's the marriage of development and operations, which means it's got to be secured in order to be resilient and fault tolerant and all of that. So, but that's the biggest piece of security is like to really understand where your security risk is, you have to understand how stuff works. Yeah. But we can get I into think, that a little bit later if you want. <laughs> no, I think it's it's funny as we're as we're talking here, I think that there was I was searching for a word earlier and as you were describing this, you know, it came to me because they're both, I think both concepts that we're explaining tie down to situational awareness. Yeah. And I think that's just, that's just key. Yeah. But in yeah, order to I have know. situational, situational awareness, you have to understand the environment, the, the core building blocks 
and, and different things like that. And then also yeah. you have to understand what the the goal and the objective and the tools that those you're interacting with have available to them. Yep. Yeah. I, I do think that there's, and, and I think that, uh, so I'm going to pull this off track for a moment. So if you want to, if you want to pull back on track, you know, we'll, we'll do that. But, uh, but, you know, I, I think one of the challenges in DevOps is that, and you were hinting at it before, is that there's just so much to know. Yeah. And I was thinking about that just this week. I was reading, there's a blog post. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of security research blogs out there. So I, I ended up reading a lot of those types of things. And one was coming out of the Palo Alto team. And they were talking about a piece of malware that they f- were analyzing that was going after Windows silo servers and Kubernetes. And in this post, like they had to really sort of bring it back and sort of talk about, okay, well, let's talk about how silos, you know, these, these server silos are built and how, how did Windows look at containers? And because you have to understand all that in order to understand how the malware works. And I was thinking about it. I was thinking if you're, you know, if you're a security guy from like me, I got to understand this stuff. But if I'm a DevOps person, how many DevOps people are deploying an application to Kubernetes and don't really understand in this case, let's talk about Windows servers, how their Windows servers are actually being deployed within a container within this K8 ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. That's a lot. It's I don't want to just sort of come off and say, well, you got to understand everything. You got to understand it works. Because it's partly true, but we also can't deny the fact that it's impossible to know, certainly not to a great extent, everything that you're probably everything that sort of goes into your application or your application ecosystem, like there could be a whole bunch in that and you can't be an expert on all of it. And I do think that that's a huge challenge to sort of figure out like how much do you need to know? How much would be good to know? And where do you just sort of draw the line and say, I can't, I can't be an expert. I know enough to know how to do my job well, you know, forget about this. I know enough to be dangerous. Like you got to go beyond, well beyond that. But you know, I know enough that I can do my job well and I know how to ask the right questions and I know how to get the answers, right? We talked about that in previous sessions too. Like I know how to go to Stack Overflow and, and formulate my you know, my question accurately. Or I'm a big fan of, you know, when I was when I was in IT, we had service providers and I knew you know, we were very conscious about who we selected, who would we, you know, who we would sign contracts with to provide that outside expertise. And this is like 30, 25, 25 years ago, or at least 20 years ago anyway. And so technology was not as diverse and complex as it is today. And even in those days, like there were just, I could not, I realized I couldn't be an expert in everything. And I needed to be able to know that I could pick up the phone or send an email and get an answer. And I think that's really even more so today that you can't be an expert in everything, but you got to know that you can get those answers when and if you need them. Yeah, and I, I think that's something that we've we've lost over the last 20 years is using or paying for that external expertise. We've had this big shift towards open source software where you can just grab the code, install it, and run it yourself, and then do yeah. this trial by error thing. And yeah, there it doesn't feel like there are a lot of, you know, hired experts that you can turn to or the, the ones that are there 
it's it seems more difficult to justify spending that money. So now you've just you've compounded the problem that you just described. It's like I'm not an expert and I don't have access to anyone who is an expert in it. Yeah. And I think those situations and I've seen that. I I mean I I'll tell you this. I have seen that situation probably more as an outsider as a security investigator coming in, right? I can tell you like well, as an example, and I don't even, I'm going to use an example that I wasn't involved with so that I know I, I'm not divulging any private, you know, like any inside information about this. But I remember way back, uh, not so long ago, right? It was only about four years ago now, five years ago, the Equifax breach, right? Mm-hmm. And so that breach was was predicated on like, like the attack service that we're talking about there was that they had an application and you can imagine this is Equifax. They have like tons of software applications. Like that's that's their business really, is all their customers interacting with their with their software, right? So they had an application that was built on Apache Struts. And right. this was the year that like it was like an Apache Struts RCE uh, remote code um, execution just to make sure everyone's, I don't want to start throwing out acronyms and people are like, what, what's he talking about? Um, yeah, remote, it's a remote code execution. So it's like the, you know, like this is on a CVSS level, like this is a level 10. Like this is like red alert, red alert, all all hands uh, man your battle station type of, type of a situation. And they were coming out like every few months. Like there must've been three or four that came out that year. And somehow they were able to scan, you know, the bad guys were able to detect it, scan it somehow in the Equifax application. It was not easy to do. I mean, Struts is sort of buried into a Java application. It's like, I remember working with a few clients around that time. It was like, we were sort of scratching our heads. Like, how do we help you proactively detect which applications are built on Struts, right? And so you had Equifax that got hit by that. And that was their way in. I thought that's how the bad guys got in. And so... Again, I don't know anything about it, but my guess is, especially from, because that became so public, like their CEO had to like testify in front of Congress. So you have this congressional record, right? And I remember reading through it um, and it seemed to me like, you know, all of their applications, it seemed like they had no idea that it was like one or two of these that were built on struts and they just didn't identify them because they had identified others and they had patched them, at least according to the testimony. Right. So. I sort of wonder if that wasn't the same thing. I mean, was it just that they had this IT organization that had no idea how this application was built? And I'm sort of in my mind playing it out, thinking, yeah, maybe it's one of those legacy applications and the guys left. And, you know, it's like one of those situations and no one had any idea that this application was built on struts, or at least, you know, these two modules that still exist, right, were built on, you know, struts 1.x or something like that and have never been, you know, like, right, rebuilt, refactored, or, or, you know, whatever, and anything else. But I, I just wonder, like, those are the types of, and that's just an example, but those are the types of situations I've seen where I feel like that happens, where the, the team that ends up having to own and manage the application or the infrastructure simply is not aware of the, you know, it's just, it's complex, and they don't know all the nuts and bolts of it. Um, and they're in the, they're in the, you know, they're just in the black. I mean, they just have in the dark. They just have no idea. Yeah. And I, I think I can tie that right back into things that a DevOps engineer must or should know by saying that you have to be bold. And I've, I refer to those machines as 
is like the phantom machines, you know, and every organization has them. I work a lot with startups and even some of the startups I work with, they have, oh yeah, there's, there's this server. We don't really know what it does. I'm like, how do you not know what it does? How long have <laughs> but, you been and, in business? Six months and you don't know what it does? <laughs> yeah. But then, so then like the thing is, is like everyone's scared to touch it. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. we don't know what it does. We're not going to touch it. And I right. approach it from a different mindset. I'm like, okay, this thing is going to go down. Absolutely guaranteed. It might be tonight. It might be next month. It might be seven years from now, but it will crash. And yeah. so we can either crash it right now and see what it does while everyone's standing here looking at it. Yeah. Or we can wait until, you know, at 3 a.m. on Friday, some Friday night in the future when we've possibly, you know, celebrated Friday night a little bit more than is healthy for good troubleshooting skills because that's when it always happens. Yeah. It catches you off guard. So the pain, the pain is guaranteed. You're going to experience the pain of that server going down. The only thing that's variable is do you want to do it right now when you've got everybody on hand to deal with it? Or do you want to wait until it catches you by surprise? Yeah. I love that approach. And I agree with you. Nobody ever wants to do that. And I, I don't, I don't understand why, but I, I, I totally agree. I mean, and you're right. You see that all the time. Like we don't know what that thing does. We just don't touch it. We don't yeah. patch it. We don't look at it. We don't breathe <laughs> on it. Nothing like what, what are you talking about? Yeah. So, all right. So let's recap. So we talked about soft skills. Mm -hmm. We talked about, having to understand how a lot of the building blocks, at least of your infrastructure works. Right. We talked about having to sometimes dig into things that you don't know and you don't really have a source of truth about. You don't really have any kind of documentation or anything else. So that's sometimes, that's just, I don't know if that's a skill or, or that's just tenacity that you have to have. <laughs> Maybe a little bit of both. Yeah, a, a little bit of both with probably a strong emphasis on the tenacity. You know, I think yeah. that's probably another another good skill set for a DevOps person to have. And just through through my career, I've I've worked with some really good people who instilled the mindset of it doesn't matter what the problem is, doesn't matter what the state is, we're gonna fix it. Yeah. Yeah, there's no alternative. Right. Right. You know, it, it, you just reminded me of a story and it, the, it, the story is told in the, I think it's told in the Phoenix project. Cause I think that, and it's, and it's funny, it's going to bug me now, but <clears throat> they talk about this process and they have this crazy acronym for it. Did you, you probably are thinking like, what is he talking about? Let me see. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's like, but the funny thing is, so I thought it was like, I mean, I could, it was believable enough because there are just enough of these crazy like processes that companies have. Like you take like the um, change management board, right? And then you say, okay, let's put that on steroids, right? Because the change management board's always just ugly. And to be honest, it's just kind of useless because no one, I mean, there's just, you're going through so many changes that no one's actually paying attention to or could even as the time to pay attention to all the details of any one of those changes. And yet they're going through 35 today, right. in today's, today's cab meeting. So like that by itself is just ridiculous. And then, you know, then what I think the example in the Phoenix project was they talked about 
a, a process that was more about, I think, like, how do we get a new architecture approved by the architecture board? And they had this really crazy acronym for it. And it just sounded ugly. It just sounded ridiculous. And I will never find it what it was. I mean, I'll probably find it three minutes after this uh, podcast recording, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> the funny thing was about it is I was listening to the, uh, you know, the audio book version of Beyond the Phoenix Project. Mm-hmm. And Jim Kim is talking about where this came from. It came from this engineer who worked in Target. Uh, this is probably going back 20 years. Like this was like, you know, this is old hat now and it's been talked about publicly. So I guess they're not worried about this getting out in the open. But this woman who worked for Target was like, she had, it was like the same acronym. It's hilarious. The same acronym. So I was like, oh, well, that's where you pulled it from. I, you know, absolutely. Right. And she really had to deal with this at Target. And she like went, like, you talk about tenacity. She went to like everybody who would listen to her story and say, this has got to go. Like we cannot be agile and, and DevOpy and all the stuff that we need to be, you know, continual learning organization and have this insane process where every time I want to introduce a new architectural change, I have to go in front of this board of like, diverse people who are going to say, all right, well, we're going to think about it for three months and we'll come back. And then you've got to present again. It was like this whole thing. Like you present once, you think <laughs> about it, you come back, you present again, maybe they'll talk about it and it'll never get done. Like it just never, you know, you, nothing ever gets past that board. And it was like real. And it was like, I was just like, it's such a great story because it's exactly what you're talking about. Having the tenacity uh, and I think this woman now is like one of the like executives at Target or maybe she's moved on by now. But I mean, she really like, you know, she had the foresight to say, this has got to go. This is, you know, it's completely impeding our ability as an organization and it's got to go. And she was able to get people on board with her. And she was only like, a, like I said, she's an engineer or something. So she wasn't like an executive who was coming in and like just with a machete and saying, okay, what are we going to get rid of? You know, it wasn't like that. And I and I think that that's really what you're talking about is having that tenacity and maybe a little bit of going back to the first thing you talked about, being a little bit forward thinking and, and being able to say, guys, we got to do things differently because this is not going to work for us long term. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software And what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. Yeah, and I think that's a great example that you don't have to have the title to have the authority. And in some cases, you know, the title is actually a hindrance to having the authority because a certain title imposes a certain set of metrics or KPIs that you have to adhere to to maintain your status as that title. But as someone without a title, you can just solely focus on here's this thing that's broken and I'm going to talk to everybody on the planet until either we all agree that it's broken and we do something to change it 
or I learn what it was I didn't know about this thing to understand it. It's not really broken at all. That that's how it needs to be. Yeah, and I think it may be an important point just to also to point out is that I think you know when you, when you for anybody who's listening to this and saying to themselves, "Wow, that sounds wonderful," but how do you have the courage to really push that hard? Right? I mean, you're going to cause waves, and clearly you got to do it in a way that is not out of anger and is not out of resentment or anything else negative. You've got to do it in positive ways or else you're just going to, you're just going to make people angry or you got to do it in a positive way. And I think that that just goes without saying, but, you know, I, I think there's, there's something that everyone in technology today has going for you, which is that there is a dearth of talent. And the more, you know, the more you're capable of doing, the more that the more value you bring to an organization. And that means that if you find that as you're pushing and you step up and you really show some courage and it doesn't work out for you, that means that there will be opportunities elsewhere. And I think everybody has to keep that in mind that there's no reason to stay in an organization that refuses to change and that refuses to try and do things in a better way. I mean, I know personally in my career, I've never wanted to stay at places like that because those end up being stressful and difficult places to work anyway. Right. So I, I, I do think that's a huge advantage for anybody in tech, uh, not necessarily true in other fields, but in right. tech, there are a lot of opportunities and you know that should give people a little bit more courage as well, just to know that you can always find um, something else. Yeah, I think you, you touched on a really good point there about how you go about that, you know, you have to do it with the right, the mindset. And, and, and I say this having on a number of occasions gone at these problems, like a bull in a China closet, just throwing people and, and hardware out of the way till I got the root cause, you know, fixing the root cause was my goal, regardless of how many things I broke in pursuit of that. And that's not the correct way to do it. And so, and, and I know a lot of people are in that situation where they're like, yeah, I know about this thing and I've talked to my manager and I feel like I'm running against a wall. And so there's this book. I actually, I think I actually um, brought it up on one of the earlier podcasts, but it's worth bringing up again. It's uh, Never Split the Difference from Chris Voss. And it's just an action packed how to get people to tell you the things that they don't know that they're supposed to be telling you which is really important in all of these types of situations. You know, you see this broken process, you know, it's unlikely that someone intentionally made it that way. It's either made that way because it's meeting a set of requirements that you don't know about, or it's atrophied over time or something like that. But before you can make a change, you have to understand all of the factors that impact this. And if you walk up and ask someone like, Hey, why is it this way? you're going to get a short, curt answer back. But this book has some really good examples about how to ask questions and how to say things to people that get them to elaborate until they, it's, and usually it's something that they don't even know that they know, but then through this process, they'll spill it out to you. And then you're like, oh, well, there's the rest of the pieces to the puzzle. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, and that's probably goes along with what we were saying earlier about just that 
the, you know, developing a sense for how to troubleshoot. And sometimes it's not troubleshooting an outage. Sometimes it's troubleshooting, why are we doing this in such a dumb way, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. At least it feels that way. And I think you're right. I mean, sometimes you peel back the layers and you realize, I mean, I know I, I've seen this many times in consulting, like we'll hear about some process. We're like, why do you do it that way? And then you find out that, well, there's we're a bank and we have regulations or we have investors or we have customers and they require us to do X, Y, or Z. And then you're like, oh, yeah, I get it. You're stuck with that. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and, but that's okay. I mean, that's to your point. Sometimes that's just the business that you're in. And those are the constraints that you have to live with. But, you know, I think you're making a good point that it's important that everybody understands that because there's no sense in having people grumble about something. If everybody, you know, if once they understood it, they might still grumble about it, but you know, they might also say, but I get it. I get why it's there. And I get that I can't do anything about it. You know, that it's there for a purpose. Yeah. But it will make your life a lot more tolerable knowing that you're not doing this thing for no reason. You know, there is a reason. It's not a great reason, but it's the situation we've got at the moment. I, I think that that is, uh, yeah, I, I think these, these are awesome ideas. What else? What else haven't we hit on? I feel like we've hit on a lot of different, you know, areas that are like really sort of across the board, right? I mean, a lot of different ideas. Yeah, I think we can, you, you said something earlier that really resonated that it's all troubleshooting. You know, it may not be an outage that you're troubleshooting, but you may be troubleshooting like why something operates this way. And that just goes in so many different directions back to the got to know everything from the 60s on type <laughs> thing. But I think as far as like the things DevOps has to know, a DevOps engineer has to know, that's really key, you know, like, because part of the thing that you are going to be troubleshooting is what are we actually doing as a company? Like, are we, okay, we're building a software product and the the developers write the code and then push that out to production. So now you're going to troubleshoot. How do they push that to production? What's that process look like? Is that something that's working well, or is that something that I can make better? Yeah. And then that goes into the whole, you know, if you're going to help them build better software, you have to understand how they build software, which means you're going to have to know a little bit about the code as far as like, not necessarily how they write the code or how they write tests, but how the code gets built and how to run a test, how to understand what their test coverage requirements are and different things like that. Yeah. And I would actually add in there, I'm not sure who's, you know, whose responsibility it is. I guess that I'm not, I'm not quite sure I've got the, my finger on that, but, you know, getting back to, because I'm, I can't leave the security side for very long before I jump back into it. You know, someone's, so someone who's, you know, someone's got to sort of take that responsibility, right. For this application, as a whole and say, what are the business risks to this application? Meaning what's special about it? What might, what we would call in the security side, what we call threat modeling it, right? Mm-hmm. Why would somebody want to get access to it or to do something? And, and if they did, how would they do that? What would be the most common or either the easiest or the most technically possible way to do that? And it requires a little bit of, you know, sort of creativity. Again, it, it goes back to understanding how things work. Right. Because 
let's face it. I mean, that's that's one of the challenges that we have with in the attack space is that we've got we're, we're up against some really capable adversaries. Uh, some of them are you know are, are funded by nation states and, and that sort of thing. And that's just that's just reality. I mean, that's what you're up against. And so if you've got something that's interesting, you got to know that you know that if you don't understand how your application works from A to Z, guaranteed that your adversary will. And they have ways of sort of figuring it out. You know, I mean, we, we've we seen just, just as an example, we've seen, uh, and this is like going back years and years and years. Here's, a, uh, yeah, here's an example for you that we saw happen quite often was that back in the day when it was still lucrative to go after credit card data, right? So you're you're going after, you know, let's say a Home Depot or, you know, one of the big retailers, right? They're just taking a whole bunch of credit cards. So PCI requires that the entire cardholder data environment is segmented off behind internal firewalls, mm-hmm. right? So if you're going to get going up against a big enough company that's doing that, they're going to be PCI compliant. So you know you're going to have to figure out how do I get through that segmentation? Because the easiest way into the environment is going to be on the corporate side, right? Through phishing or through somebody doing a drive-by point down malware accidentally, or, you know, it's, I mean, those are always the easiest ways in, and we know that, right? But now the idea was that I was going to try and put enough de- defense and depth in place, right? Where even if they got in the corporate side, they can't get into the cardholder data side, right? Right. And what we found running some of these investigations was that we would actually see that the bad guys were going into the corporate network, going onto file shares, pulling down Visio diagrams and studying how the segmentation worked. So, I mean, it's just a, it's a silly example, although it's, it's completely true. And we saw that in multiple environments, but that was, you know, like if you don't think the bad guys know how your environment operates, even if they can't figure it out from the outside, they will figure it out from the inside. Right. And they will be tenacious about it because they are incentivized to do so. So, you know, that's another it's another reason why you got to understand your application, but you also have to understand and you can't sort of turn a blind eye and say, well, I don't know why anybody would want to be interested in my application or my data. And some of the time the answer is they're not interested in you. They're interested in your customers. Right. So like right. when we talk about like a supply chain event like so you know, solar winds, right? No one really cared about hacking into solar winds because solar winds is an interesting company. They were interested in hacking the solar winds and then trojanizing their software because that became a vehicle to get into everybody else's, you know, anybody uses solar winds, which was like a whole bunch of companies. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a software um, delivery mechanism. It is. It's just a software develop, uh, delivery mechanism. Exactly. But we term it as a supply chain attack because you're basically attacking the supply chain in order to get to the end victim. But right. you know, if you are a if you're a company and you're developing software, you got to ask yourself that question: Who are my customers, and could I be that transit into my customers' environment? And it's very possible that's why you might be a victim. So it's it's not you can't just say, "Well, I'm small; no one cares about me; no one's interested in me." And you can't just throw it off that way. You got to like that's part of what. And I, like I said. I started this by saying, I don't know who owns this. Honestly, it should be the business. The business owner owns it. The um, chief uh, compliance officer owns this, right? The CFO owns this. But let's face it, they're not going to understand how to threat model and how to look at the technical risk within sort of translating the business risk over to technical risk and understand your application and 
and how it might be used, you know, or abused by an attacker, and right. they're not going to have any of that skill set. You are. And I, and I think it, it does fall on, I mean, that's why people do talk about DevSecOps, because it does fall on DevOps to try and really understand this. But I don't think it means you have to understand all the bits and pieces of it. It could be like what you were saying before, Will, that if you're the devs, you know, the DevOps guy or gal, that you get the team together and you say, listen, I don't have the answers here, but let's do some threat modeling. And, and that could just be a brainstorming activity, right? Like how, why would attacker be interested? What might they do? And I tell you something, you get you get enough people into a room, they start brainstorming it, you'll get really creative ideas. Some of them are crazy, but some of them were like, whoa, that's scary, you know, right? Yeah, you know, some of them possible. are like, oh no, they're right. Oh yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you know, anything that's technically feasible, you can't write off. I mean, even if it's difficult, you can't write off because yeah. Some of these groups, they they have the time and they have the resources, so you can't write it off. Yeah, the ones that that access the Visio diagrams on the network to reverse engineer the network, like my only ask there is when they're done, can they update the Visio diagram? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Can you show us what you did? Yeah. I, mean, know, I, I know they spent at least a couple of weeks <clears throat> trying to get through something that was out of date well, on the diagram. And, and the crazy thing was that you we we saw that for like a period of time and then we didn't see it anymore because I think after that they just figured out. Like they knew. Like one of the most common openings between the two environments was for Active Directory. So then they just in general would just go after domain controllers. And if right. I go after a domain controller, I will most likely have access into the so that'd be their first step is okay, take over a domain controller. And then just try to jump into the segmented network. And then if that doesn't work, maybe they'll go back and do some more research. But nine times out of 10, that works because you need AD on both sides of the network. So there you go. Yeah. (laughs) There's your segmentation just collapsing around you. Yeah, because I've only seen a couple of instances where they had separate Active Directory domains on the segmented network and yeah. the corporate network. It's it, it it's it, you're right. I mean, some do it, but it's not common because it it just makes everything a hassle. Oh yeah, yeah. The level of effort to get anything done was monumental. Yep. So I've seen that in a couple of smaller shops where they only had a couple of people on that side of the network, and those guys would just put up with it. But larger environments, no way. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's again, it's just it just shows you though the the lengths that that a motivated attacker will go through. And and you can't, you just can't write it off anymore. It's not like, it's not 20 years ago where, you know, you just had a couple of people in a basement just trying to figure out, can I do this? Could I actually do this, right? (laughs) It's not like that anymore. Yeah, no, there was, I remember in the early days of, uh, of Windows NT and IIS, you know, when you could do directory traversal over the website and then you had SQL injection I mean, and people didn't believe I, it. Like SQL injection came out. I think the first time I saw it reported was like in 96, something like that. I mean, we're talking way long ago and people just didn't believe it. Like, no, you can't. You can't use a web browser and interact with my database. There's no way. Yeah. Years ago, I used to introduce myself as Johnny Drop Table, and it was always good for a laugh, but right. no one laughs anymore because no one gets the joke just right. because we've all but eliminated SQL injection attacks. And I know that a lot of software does a lot of behind the scenes right. work to mitigate right. that. 
Right. But for most right. people who are writing and using code, very few of them anymore have any knowledge of what SQL injection tax no. were. And it's funny, so they still pop up, uh, mostly in WordPress plugins. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but because that's the thing, you still have to be aware of it. And going back to what we said before, sometimes you have to be aware of these things because you just don't know when you're going to fall into it. And if you become a PHP programmer and are writing WordPress plugins, like WordPress is totally built on MySQL, right? Yeah. And everything, the whole way that that platform functions is on MySQL. And so we constantly see plugins still being, so today, being developed with SQL injection vulnerabilities. And you're right, they're absolutely easy to avoid if you simply don't use dynamic queries. You use parameterized queries, they're done. Right. <laughs> End of story. And yet, anyway, but yeah, I mean, it's probably a good point though why it's important to still understand what it is, even today, because it's still possible. It's just not likely. Yeah, there's there's definitely a, a role and opportunity in the DevOps space for for mentoring. And maybe that's something we should add here. And the things that you should know is know who your DevOps mentor is. Yeah. Because and I, there's um a lot of people, they look at us old dudes and they're like, oh man. He's telling stories again, but yep. sometimes I have a point to the stories. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's okay to tell stories. You just can't tell boring stories. Right. Yeah. That's the worst. No one wants to hear your boring stories or your story the seventh time around. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got to, you've got to develop your storytelling skills as your DevOps yeah. career progresses. There you go. As you get an order, <laughs> you've got to develop that skill. We'll have to put that Absolutely. on the uh, career path. That's right. That's right. As you get older, if you've got 20 years, you better you better be a good storyteller because if not, no one's going to listen to you. Yep, absolutely. I think this is good. I, I feel like this is probably like we've hit, we've hit a lot of really good points. Maybe this is a good pl- place to uh, to stop. What do you think? I think so. I feel like we could we could go on, but at some point we stop stop delivering value and just start rambling. Right. The diminishing returns. Yeah. And I think we're at that point. Yeah. Cool. So we got to do our picks of the week. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. What have you got? So... All right, my pick is going to be completely off technology and all that. So I'm doing something, I think it'll be fun. So my kids, this is their last week of school. And so we have like a one week break between when they finish school and when they start camp. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to try and do a fun project with my kids. And this is going to be like crazy because I've never done this before. And it's like trying to do it with, you know, younger kids. I've twins that are 10 and then I've got a younger daughter who's eight. So they just require a lot of like hand holding and these types of activities. So so I don't know if you've seen these, like it's become all the rage on YouTube that people are like building these like a woodworking project, like build tables, whether they're end tables or dining room tables or something like that. And they're using like these live edge slabs of wood. And then because they don't marry together very well, they use epoxy, right? So there's these epoxy 
projects where the epoxy runs through it and it looks like a river. So you color it like blue or something. It looks like a river's running through your table. Yeah. And all yeah. This, right. And have this mold for it and all that. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. I'm not going to build this huge table. But then I saw that this, uh, this company in, in, um, in Michigan, in the upper peninsula of Michigan, I think it's called Bell Products, something like that. Bell Forestry. I'll, have to, I'll put a link in the uh, show notes for it. But they have like all these exotic woods and they'll send you a box of like a hobby box of like, what's it? I want to say it was like 15 pounds of, of like just odds and ends of exotic wood. And they're just the coolest thing. It's like there's like this really dark ebony looking piece of hardwood. There's uh, something called purple hearts and the wood is actually purple. Oh, nice. So like, yeah. Like you really get these like really beautiful, exotic looking raw wood. And so what I'm thinking about doing is like, just we're going to do something smaller, like maybe like a 12 inch diameter or 12 by 12 square, or maybe a rectangle or something like that, like more, more like a platter or it could be a, like a cutting board or whatever the kids want to do with it, or just hanging on the wall. Mm-hmm. Right. But I'm just going to cut the wood into like smaller pieces and like let them make whatever design they want. And then we'll fill it in with epoxy. So yeah, I've never done an epoxy project. So I'm like, I have no idea. Like, so I'm like watching these and like, all right, I'm going to try and figure this out without like, hopefully it like actually comes out because you want it to look nice at the end. Like you don't want this like looking like something like that. a I don't know, that's just three-year-old did as opposed to a 10-year-old, right? <laughs> they want it to look nice. So anyway, so that's my pick. My pick is it's a cool project. And I think it's also just cool. Like this, this place I found in, in the upper peninsula of Michigan that will sell you like exotic wood and it's like just amazing stuff that you can get from them so i'll put that in the show notes that's my pick right on that sounds actually like a lot of fun (laughs) yeah should be the kids are excited even better even better i mean that's that's a huge first start when doing a project with kids is finding something that they're excited about yeah yeah exactly and i think it's so that'd be fun for like you know the week that they're out of school yeah how about you so my pick you know, I was going to go with something else, but based on what we talked about here, I'm switching it up. I'm going to pick again the Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, because I just don't think you can. I can recommend that book enough for what we do, because so much of what we do just ties into communication, which for a lot of us, you know, we fell into technology because we weren't the greatest communicators, but we could sit and hack away on a keyboard and figure things out that way. But to be successful in DevOps, you have to be able to communicate with people. And a lot of large part of communication is getting them to tell you the things that they don't know they should be telling you. Yeah. And that's where this book really excels. And it's an entertaining read, which is why I like it so much because the background of Chris Voss is he was an FBI hostage negotiator. And so he starts every chapter with a story from his career, you know, of someone who was kidnapped and it was this scenario, you know, and they were in this country and here were the facts that he had to work with. And then, so he goes through the story and then backtracks through the story, showing you the individual communication skills he applied and which ones worked and which ones didn't and why that might be. And so it's a really good, it's an entertaining read, but it's also very educational. And I've been able to use the things I picked up from that book just nearly every single day since I read it. Cool. Yeah. I've heard other people also talk about that book. So yeah, definitely something that sounds like, it sounds like a great, definitely a, a 
skill builder because it's just one of those things that we all need to do a bit of a better job just being able to communicate and understand where somebody else is coming from or like you said trying to sometimes just trying to get the information we need uh, that can be a challenge yeah and that was one of the points he makes early in the book is that when you think about a hostage negotiator you think oh, i've got to take this guy down and he said that's absolutely not the approach the approach to hostage negotiation is what's the common ground with this person how do we how do we how do we find common ground? Because if you if you split the difference, when you think about it from a hostage scenario, if you have two hostages, you split the difference. It means you killed one of them. He's like, right. that's not a winning situation. So no. No. You, you empathize with the the person who has the hostages, find out what their goals are, and then work together to achieve those goals. Yeah. So there we go. Cool. All, All right. right. Note. Yeah. I think it's a wrap. And hopefully As Charles is... Uh, going to let us do this again. <laughs> we'll find out. We'll find out. Well, for everybody out there, yeah, I think this is a wrap and uh, we'll catch you on the next episode of Adventures in DevOps. Right on. See you guys. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.